0: This is Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. Next week's episode will feature my guest, Michael Patrick King, the creative force behind Sex and the City, a cultural phenomenon now for a quarter of a century, and he's been my friend for 35 years. But today I'm sharing the encore of my Tim Gunn conversation. If you haven't heard it before, you are in for a treat. And if you have heard it, please give it another listen. And while doing so, as you hear me question Tim, ask yourself, if you were being interviewed, would you be so quick and so candid in your answers? Enjoy.
1: Well, I'm mean, going to feel arrogant saying this since it's my own phrase and I've been saying it in the classroom for decades, but it's my own medicine. Make it work. Just make it work, Tim. Tim.
0: Welcome to Ye Gods, I'm Scott Carter. Tim Gunn is an American treasure. Yes, he stars on shows such as Making the Cut and Project Runway and writes bestsellers like Tim Gunn's Fashion Bible or A Guide to Quality, Taste, and Style. But I think the enduring popularity of this overnight star at age 50 owes most to his being an educator, The kind of teacher or administrator, and he's been both, that you wish you or your kids would have been lucky enough to have. When people respond to his expertise and energy, his compassion and curiosity, they are reacting, I think, in an age of moral relativism to his sunny affirmation of actual values work hard, be decent. He's a grown-up's grown-up who knows eternal lessons are always worth teaching and learning. Tim, it is great to see you. Thank you for being here today.
1: Scott, thank you for having me, and thank you for that wonderfully generous introduction. I'm verklempt. (laughs) Well, I I hope that you
0: recover your power of language. You are the perfect ye gods guest because you have a very strong sense of why you do things and when you think your own behavior or the behavior of others is either appropriate or inappropriate. And in The Natty Professor, which is a great title, and also The Golden Rules, you kind of spell a lot of this out. So I want to ask you about some of these ideas. The first one is the world owes you nothing. Is something that I
1: think it takes a lot of people a long time to learn. Well, this was a sort of epiphany that I had in in the classroom with my students because with more and more frequency, I was finding that students were feeling the sense of entitlement. And why? What have you done to earn that entitlement? And certainly, I'm not going to cut you a break just because you feel you should be cut a break. You're going to have to go through the same trials and tribulations as, as everyone else in this classroom. So... I believe it strongly. And and I have to say, too, it also comes from some of my family members, I'm afraid to admit, one in particular, who just felt that he didn't need to follow the same rules that everyone else follows. And quite frankly, he's become a bum. So he got what he asked for. And that's another comment
0: that I've heard from you is never underestimate the power of karma. It's true. That that what you put out there is stuff that is is something that is going to come back to you at another time. Also, the notion of um, there's always another side to the story. Yes. How, how did you learn that that was true?
1: Well, so much of this, if not all of it, has come from my 29 years of teaching. You'll have a student run in and scream, this is an emergency, this is a 911, people have to respond to this. Well, what's going on? And when I was chair of the fashion program at Parsons and when I was associate dean there, I, I had to, to intervene in a lot of disputes. And there's always another side. There just is, and, you, and it's your responsibility to find out what that other side is. And sometimes the initial cry of outrage is correct, but I found frequently it wasn't. What are the facts? What's really going on here? So, so I, I believe in doing a deep dive and finding out those things. It's it's our responsibility.
0: I was interested in finding out when you first became head of the fashion department at Parsons how you had a radical revision of, of the curriculum. And you did not necessarily at that time have the kind of stature you do now, whereby very often your instincts will be backed up by a lot of people because you have an incredible track record of success. Um, at that time, you needed the dean of the school to be completely backing you up, which I, I think he did. Yes. But did you have doubts that you're, that this radical, and maybe describe it a little bit, this radical approach to the curriculum was going to pay off?
1: Well, Scott, to be honest, I didn't know. But what I did know was that We couldn't go on doing things the way that things have been done in the the, the Department of Fashion Design. When I stepped into that department, it was in an acting capacity, ostensibly for six months to a year. And I'd been there for three months. And quite frankly, I was in a state of shock by how antiquated and anachronistic the program was. And I said to the dean, this is not a Department of Fashion Design. This is a dressmaking school. And it's shameful because we owe the students so much more than that. And they're so much more capable than what, what they're, they're being um, presented with. And I will also tell you it was the most terrified I think I've ever been um, making these changes and, and, and trying to recruit the faculty to be a part of it. Because I, I don't believe in hands-down governing um, or top-down governing, I should say. Everything should be a collaboration of sorts. And there were some people who were on board, but most people simply were not. And in the midst of all of this, and actually this happened after the changes started to be implemented, which happened the following academic year, because my first year there, I couldn't do, really do anything except pummel people with questions and observe because the budget was set, the curriculum was set, the faculty contracts were, were out. So that year was a learning curve for me. And my truth tellers in all of this were the students, because they were the ones who would tell me how they're responding to the the, the challenges or lack of challenges that they were being presented with. So, and and just to give you a kernel of, of the, the issue, Scott, this is a program, it was the first fashion program in America, founded in 1906. And At the time that I took over the department, more than 70% of the designers on 7th Avenue were Parsons educated, so clearly something was working. Though, after a few months there, I said, "Well, well, I think this program is like the monkeys and the typewriters. You give a thousand monkeys, a thousand typewriters for a thousand years, someone's going to write the great American novel. And in the case of these students, they were so capable, so qualified, so motivated that they were doing so much on their own. Oh, but the kernel I wanted to share with you is, here we have, I'll say arguably the the best fashion program in in the country. And there had never been a fashion history course. Never. the, The department wasn't teaching students the history of their own discipline. So in my pummeling of questions, why? Why is, why is there no fashion history course here? And the answer was, <laughs> you're going to love this. We don't want the students to be influenced. Uh-huh. What? Yeah. Can you imagine? I said, what if, what if the corollary is, is sculpture? And you're on a mountaintop somewhere, and you're creating all this work. You've never had an art history course. You've never looked at an art book. And you load your truck up with your sculpture and you head to New York to 57th Street, and you go into a gallery with it, and they say, gee, where did you find all this brand koozie? Who? I mean, can you imagine? And that that was the state of the department, that there were no references. So if you're reinventing the wheel, no one called you on it. So I put in place a three-semester fashion history sequence that was required of all students. And they, I will say, they flourished.
0: Yeah, I, there was an article in the Times last week about Journals of Leonardo's. Yes. That are still being mined for new ideas. And there is a there will he will be eternally relevant because he was going to what's the truth of the world? What's the truth of gravity? What is the truth of um of of perspective? What is the truth? And as long as you're doing that, you're getting to something eternal. We hope. And we, we hope. And uh, also what you, I think what you mentioned during this time was a lot of the current faculty were serving themselves, not their students
1: in these, in the show that would be done at the end of the senior year. Oh, most definitely. And, and even the faculty, they were a, a, a united force more or less against me, but they weren't united I intervened in a p- huge, horrible argument that was happening in, in in um the faculty lounge among the junior year faculty who teach construction or taught construction. There were six of them. No two of them could agree on what the dolman sleeve is. And I thought this is outrageous. I went to my office took the Fairchild Dictionary of Fashion off my bookshelf, brought it into the faculty lounge and said, well, Fairchild says that this is what the Dolman Sleeve is. And their response was, Fairchild is wrong. (laughs) And I said, I don't care. We need to have core competencies in this department. We need to all subscribe to the same um, lexicon. We we have got to get on the same page. I want to add one of the other things, Scott, about this tremendously important task of... repositioning the fashion program, people said would say to me, well, you're not a fashion designer. Why, why are you doing this? And I have to say, I think it was a benefit not to be a fashion designer. I didn't have a fashion education. I didn't have a, a, a personal aesthetic other than how I dress myself. So I didn't have an agenda. I, I didn't have any biases. And I was just open to quality and to rational thinking and and the sequencing of delivering information to students. Whenever anyone is in a situation where they think, oh, I, I'm, I'm feeling imposter syndrome, well, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should fully embrace it and figure that it gives you an objectivity that's very positive.
0: You, you've, you've mentioned already the phrase truth-telling, which is the T in your uh, a T-E-A-C-H program in The Natty Professor. Um, Truth telling is is a huge value for you. Did that come easily, or was there a time where you second guessed yourself more?
1: Well, it's it's multi pronged. Yes, I second guessed myself, but also I realized teaching, and and I'll repeat, I taught for twenty nine years, and and it was a struggle uh, in the beginning, and part of it was part of that struggle was holding back on what I wanted to say to students, thinking, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to dislike me for the for, for, for this reason. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm doing them a disservice. I need to tell them what I'm thinking about their work, providing it's something they can do something about. Um, I say this all the time. If you have spinach in your teeth and we're about to go out on stage, I'm going to tell you because you can do something about it. But if I'm looking at your tie and I think, ugh, that's the worst-looking tie I've ever seen, I'm not going to say anything about it. There's nothing you can do. So if it's something that can be changed, I'm quick to talk about it. But also, through a a, a spirit of diplomacy and tact, not, not mean-spiritedness, that's another thing that I learned quickly while teaching, that if you're perceived as being mean-spirited, the students just shut down like a garage door and they don't let you in again. And I thought, I've got to be careful about how I phrase things. How
0: how did you hit that happy medium between, or is there a happy medium between, being completely honest with what they need to know and being too brutal to the point where you cause them to shut down?
1: Well, I would play in my head what I was about to say to the individual or in some cases the group. And I would think, how would I respond to this? And if it wasn't positive or if it, if it wasn't even, I'll just say, neutral, then I would a- adjust my thinking and, and, and play with new words. A- a- and that requires, is another one of the, um, the letters in teach, it requires a lot of empathy to try to project yourself into the situation and think, how would I respond to this? And I'm both blessed and cursed with having a great deal of empathy. Yeah, I think the empathy angle,
0: it's, it's exceedingly important, and I feel like it's one of the last things that, that human beings get. And some never get it at all. But agreed, a baby and a toddler, an infant, a young child, they cannot distinguish between the rest of the world and themselves. But if they are hungry, the entire world is hungry. If they are weary, the entire world should take a nap. And it, it seems like it's one of the last things in development, which is why I think a lot, of, a lot of writers who can have, let's say, a first novel that is first person and have that be a success, it is sometimes challenging to get to the place where you can write like Dickens or Tolstoy, where they can go into the mind of so many different kinds of people because they have that power of empathy that you're talking about.
1: I completely agree.
0: How did, during the time that you taught, how did students change and how do you think you changed because of
1: them? Well, in many ways, I feel that the characteristics of students were very much the same, but how they presented themselves would be different. That would evolve just as the world evolves and especially in, in design programs, because I've always taught design, it has to do with a thing. And it's, it's, a, it's a three-dimensional thing. It sits in front of you. You work with your hands to develop it. Um, and your brain, of course, your mind. So it's something tangible. It's not something sitting in a virtual environment. And there's not a lot that you can do. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is all leading up to, to new forms of media and, and computer technology. Or information technology, you still. Got, what you're doing is tactile, um, and it requires uh, interaction, um, not stepping back and watching what's happening. If you're not doing it, it's not happening at all. So, so those those things remain the same. But I have to also say one thing about my students for all those years, and I'm I'm teaching again now. I'm teaching at Emerson College in Boston, and I'm absolutely loving it. My students keep me current. They know what's going on. God knows I'm not hip. Um, but my students keep me current, and they keep me feeling fairly hip. And they're a tremendous resource. I say this very selfishly. I mean, I selfishly have a great deal of pleasure being with them. I learn. I grow. And I think that's what keeps me going through life or, or navigating life. It's, it's that growth factor. You are
0: coming up on a 70th birthday. Yes, yes. I turned 70 in April. I I would assume that you feel that this is the richest time of your life, that you have never been better because of all that you have experienced. You've never been better and wiser than you are now.
1: I agree. I totally agree. And I wouldn't go backwards a single day when people say, oh, wouldn't you want to regain your youth? No, no i mean as you say with each successive day we're older we're wiser we're more mature we're more experienced who would want to erase any of that i certainly wouldn't no and and i'm i'm also very comfortable and and maybe the better word is resigned i don't know but i'm very comfortable with my age and with how i look i have no desire to have botox or cosmetic surgery or dye my hair i'm just i i am what i am and it gives me confidence navigating the world and people can accept it or not but you need to be able to live with yourself
0: i think one of the reasons why people are so comfortable around you is you seem so comfortable within yourself
1: well thank you and it's it's acquired (laughs) it
0: doesn't come naturally and, and building off of what you just said, I want to talk about your notions of spirituality. And you talk a little bit, Natty Professor, about how religion was presented to you through your growing up. Do you think that when you die, do you think there's a judgment over what your behavior was like on this planet?
1: In a way, the judgment that I experience happens every day because I'm judging myself and evaluating my own behavior and values and, and how I conduct myself. And that is to say that I I do everything to keep it in check. I would like to think that there isn't a higher authority judgment day, though I do believe in a higher authority. I hope that when I go, I just go. (laughs) I I don't want to be sitting in a moral ethical courtroom.
0: When you say that there's a higher authority, how do you describe this higher, higher authority to yourself?
1: Well, I am, if I choke up, you'll have to forgive me. I am so easily overwhelmed, overcome by phenomena, by beauty, by, by things that, we, that happen that we can't explain, by the triumph of the human spirit. I go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I'm in awe. I, I just, I want to drop to my knees and genuflect and to think that human beings created this. I feel the same way about, about music, especially classical music. It can't just it can't happen in a vacuum. There, there there clearly is a larger, higher, and I'll say spiritual authority that is over all of us that helps nurture these things and allow them to happen. Yeah, I I, I I'm a bit of a I'm a romantic, though, though I have no romantic relationships. I'm easily moved by beautiful writing, by beautiful works of art, by beautiful music, by, I'm frankly, walking the streets of New York. It, it, it makes me high just being out and about. It's remarkable. Yeah, Tim, if uh, if I will,
0: I never cri- criticize anyone when they uh, tear up. I But I have a lot of friends who, if they do will apologize to me and say sorry that I'm crying and I will say um if you're crying you're alive yeah if you're if you're crying you are completely connected to this moment your mind is not somewhere else and and something in life is hitting you in such an overwhelming way that that the the, <laughs> the tear ducts are the only uh, responsible outlet for what you're feeling right now. It's true. I agree. What you just said reminds me of of the end of, um, Alan Ball's American beauty. That's a haunting movie. Well, what, what I loved about that, and Alan's a friend of mine was I immediately wrote to him after I first saw it and said the premise of most movies that have a character who's gone through the afterlife is that they don't change at all. They just want to get back and repeat things and go back to the station where they were, or that, that their value system is very much the same. So in Heaven Can Wait, a boxer uh, or an athlete, Warren Beatty in the remake of Here Comes Mr. Jordan, originally with Robert Montgomery, and then it was remade with... Uh, it's an athlete who dies prematurely. He wants to come back and be an athlete again. There is no notion that this other dimension into which he's gone has altered his consciousness in a profound way. Or even at the beginning of Sunset Boulevard, when we see William Holden floating in a pool, he's kind of William Holden, the same William Holden that he is throughout the the movie. That's a very good point. Jaded, which is why American beauty is different from all the rest because it, it takes into account that if we did go to some other realm... It would have a profound effect upon our consciousness. And I believe that. I also think that it is the gift of artists to receive the the visual, the oral stimuli, stimulations that you hear all around you each day, or if you go to museum, or if you go to Carnegie Hall. It is a gift to be able to react that strongly to what you are experiencing.
1: Well, you're lovely to say that, and I... I'm grateful to you.
0: One more thing and then I, I, I want to move on but one more thing is what I like about the the books where you talk about your own rules is that you don't just give an absolute which can be a trap you give parameters. You'll you'll present two different things which are the two different sides of the same issue. So for instance you say don't abuse your power or surrender it. Well You're saying, don't be Macbeth and don't be King Lear. (laughs) Two people who did not, their life did not end very well, and we are watching their tragedy. You say, niceties are nice, but you also say physical comfort is overrated. Yes. Giving this parameter. This is my favorite, I think. Know what to get off your chest and what to take to the grave. I believe in that. Were there ever times... Where you confided something in someone that
1: you should have taken to the grave. Oh yes, and that's and I learned from that. If you're suffering because of something that you did and, and you want to get it off your chest and, and feel ostensibly feel better because you're going to tell this person what you did, just don't do it because then th- that person is going to feel horrible. and hopefully you're not going to feel any better either. No, there are things you just have to keep to yourself.
0: And some of it goes to what you were saying before about spinach in the teeth or the tie you are wearing. Yes. Can anything be done about it? There, very often now, I do not tell people things by which they hurt me because none of us have a time machine where we can go back and fix it. And, and if I've gotten to a good place with them now, why not celebrate that?
1: Yes. Yes. Or I, I, I will also add, and, and this is the harsher me, if they're hurting your feelings and it's consistent, maybe you need to cleanse yourself of them. You know, as opposed to trying to heal and repair, maybe you just need to make a quick exit.
0: Yeah. Now, are there times where you've done that, but then enough time has gone by that you've wanted to re-establish
1: their relationship on a different level? That's an excellent question. And this is where I practice the keep it to yourself. If I'm feeling, oh, let's go back and, and try this again, no, let's not. Let's keep it the way it is. The other person hasn't reached out. And it's potentially hurtful to both parties to me and the other person, to for me to reach out. So I I, I resist that. I'd, I'd practice great doses of self-discipline to to just stick by what, what happened before. I mean, that may sound unforgiving, and in a way it is, but I think it can be, personally, I feel it would be selfish of me to say, well, let's try this again. Even though we were both very hurt and unhappy with the outcome. Why are we trying this again? And can I also add that in in the past, and it's distant, when I have done that, it doesn't work out. It just doesn't. I have had some people who, when they've wanted to terminate
0: relationship with me, I have spent time thinking, what's be, What's a way to, to get us back on a good plane, maybe not the same relationship we had before, but at least a, a, a livable truce.
1: Over time, though, I've realized, let it be. Hmm. I, I understand. I think if you're living with someone, it's a totally different set of circumstances. But when, when we're talking about friendships or professional relationships, I, I feel it's different.
0: You. You also. One of the other things that that's kind of a boundary setting, where you give both sides is give back. But know your limits. Hmm. I would yes. think that 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 as you gained in, in stature and fame, you must have had people pulling you from five thousand different directions, and you strike me as the kind of person who always wants to, to give back because I think you've got this this gene of teaching, this gene of, it's almost an evangelical gene for for that which you appreciate in life. And yet you must have had to, in your 50s, get to a place of setting new boundaries that didn't need to be there before.
1: Well, you're, you're quite correct. Yes. And it was hard to do because as you say, you want to give, 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 especially to things that that you believe in. I mean, I don't give to things I don't believe in. I'm When, when I'm invited to, to, to uh, have a speaking engagement, I'm, I do my due diligence and, and research the, the organization to make certain this is something I really, these are people I really want to talk to. Yes, boundaries are very important. I think boundaries are important even when you go grocery shopping. <laughs> they're just, they're, they're important for us to have.
0: So Tim, when you're growing up and you grew up in the D.C. area, what? How was – your your father worked in the FBI. Your mom worked in the CIA. She was a researcher.
1: She she was the first librarian, and she was there for three years. So she was developing the CIA library. An incredible responsibility.
0: So how – was there religion in your home when you were growing up? I know you talk in, Natty Professor, about your father driving everybody. You went to a church that was within walking distance of your home. You could have yes. walked. But he drove, and sometimes then he was late to the service. What do you think that was about?
1: Well, he didn't want to be there. I was raised an Episcopalian, and my parents would tell the story about their pre-wedding meeting with the priest. And the priest, I think it was just pro forma, said, and you will raise your children to be Episcopalians. And my father said, "I, I, I can't tell you that. I, I don't know. I don't believe he was ever a fan of the Episcopal Church. And I have to say, what I loved about my father driving us to St. Albans was that there were many stop signs. And there were Sundays when I simply hopped out of the car at the stop sign and ran home. And hid.
0: <laughs> was there a consequence for that?
1: Oh, yes, most definitely. But I will also say, I had my what's the right term? I, I had my moment of reprieve is the word, maybe. I thought that our Episcopal priest was nuts. I mean, I really did. And there was something about him. He gave off a very strange aura. And one day, and I was happy I was had not jumped out of the car that day, he went into a silent prayer. And 40 minutes later, parishioners were approaching the whatever it is at the front of the church and um, they had to take him away and he never came back. So it was like, I told you, I told you. So did you
0: respond to the, to the music or, and the architecture at that time? Oh yes. And I still do. Yeah. And, and what about, did any of the message of the church have any impact on you? Well, I think it
1: has to, What the impact was, well, I was an attentive listener, I will say that, during the sermon. And I liked the ceremony of the church. Of course, it helped form me. It it had to. And there were also times when I would say to myself, oh, this is being a little extreme in terms of rules and regulations or morals and ethics. And I would take it with a grain of salt. It helped me Well, this is in retrospect. How I felt at the moment, it's hard to say. But it helped me be critically analytical, in a manner of speaking, um, to, to not just accept everything, but ask why, what purpose, how does it affect me? And I will say, though, I don't think you can go to church of any religion or a house of worship of any religion and not come away feeling that we all need to own our place in the world and be responsible citizens and respect each other and respect ourselves. And those are excellent values, I believe. For me,
0: there was a time where even when I didn't connect to the notion of, do I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do I believe in God? I was besides architecture and music there's also the charm particularly for me of the King James Bible which is which is concurrent with the time of Shakespeare and some of the language is just overwhelmingly beautiful like the like the most beautiful poetry in fact in Pygmalion when Henry Higgins is giving a lecture to Eliza the three were the three works that he cites are you're in the tradition of Shakespeare Milton and the Bible And of course, he means the King James Bible. But so many phrases, the peace of God that passes all understanding, the the beginning of the 23rd Psalm. Um, There was a thought for me that even if I didn't believe the basic premise of the religion, there was something that was inspiring very talented, very intelligent people to be expressing what they felt in such beautiful language or architecture or music.
1: Yes, it's very, very true. I agree. It was a it was a profound catalyst for enormous creative activity. One of the
0: things that I listened to over the weekend in preparation for this was a conversation you did at the 92nd Street Y, I think maybe after the fourth season of Project Runway. Uh-huh. And you were still in the the flush of new celebrity. <laughs> and and several times in the course of this conversation, you said, I pinch myself every day. And I still do. Oh, there's a somebody very famous in show business who I went to their house one time <clears throat> and it was this enormous spread. And this friend who I've known since the early 1980s said, he'd be surprised how quickly you get used to it. Oh. Do you have to work harder to keep a sense of humility about all that you have been, all, all the all the accolades, all, all of the
1: rewards that
0: you have received?
1: Well, you're enormously kind, and, and I'll say generous again with, with that comment. No. I mean, I, I'm humbled every day. I thank my lucky stars every day. I pinch myself. I think when this happens to you after you turn 50, you're... At least you should be very grounded and know who you are and know what an incredible phenomenon it is. And I don't conduct myself any differently than than I certainly did before. And when we were taping Project Runway, I I mean, I was on the subway every day. And also, the subway is the best way to do fashion research. (laughs) So it was my laboratory. But I know people who've gone the other way. I feel bad for those people.
0: Well, I feel like they are on a treadmill path that is getting them closer each day to just locking in being miserable. That's, that's a very good point. Yeah. Be- because you staying grounded, it's almost like anything that you've received could be taken away. Oh, and, yeah. And you are still back in the place that you've been for decades of your life. If these people shift, I one friend in show business once who said, "Whatever, whenever I get more, I always make that the new baseline." Oh no! And and I feel like,
1: wait a minute, how can you live your life like that? No, you can't. Oh, that's that would that would make me miserable, quite frankly. No, I'm eternally grateful for everything. And I, when people say, "Well, what have you done? What have you not done done that you want to do?" Uh, My response is it would be hubris to even speculate. I am so lucky. I am so blessed. There is, to wish for something at this point would would be just that. It'd be throwing hubris in the face of an angry God. Awful. Awful.
0: I've enjoyed this so much. Let me ask you two questions as we conclude. One is, is there a phrase, it could be sacred, it could be secular, but when you are finding yourself newly challenged, you find yourself returning to this phrase.
1: Well, I'm going to feel arrogant saying this since it's my own phrase and I've been saying it in the classroom for decades, but it's my own medicine. Make it work. Just make it work, Tim. The last question is,
0: imagine tomorrow you have been elected the benevolent dictator of the world by, by complete acclamation. Everyone on earth has agreed to this. You get this one day. And you only have one ceremonial duty, which is you have been selected to curate one work of art, one experience that you would wish everyone in the world to, to take part in because you think it would make the world a better place. You're now out on the balcony. What do you tell the gathered throng?
1: Well, I would have a very large movie screen dropped, and I would have everyone watch The Wizard of Oz.
0: Why The Wizard of Oz, and can you describe the impact that that movie had for you the first time you saw it?
1: Oh, the first two dozen times that I saw it, I was absolutely terrified. And the first half dozen times, I would watch it under a sheet on our living room couch. Um, We had one television. It was, well, it was actually in the den, so it was the den couch. I was constantly pulling the sheet over my head. But what I love about that movie is, and it really is timeless, and I saw it as recently as last week for the hundredth time, it's about hope. It's about believing that things will get better and that good will triumph over evil. It's just a beautiful movie about hope. It's also about appreciation.
0: Yes. That, that, if I, that if I couldn't find my heart's desire in my own backyard, it wasn't worth going out and looking for anyway. Yes. It's beautiful. Tim Gunn, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I, I feel like the students at Emerson are so lucky to be getting to experience you personally and, and you are providing something to them that they will never forget and hopefully they will all go on to wondrous careers and you will have this Ongoing contribution to American culture.
1: Well, Scott, thank you very, very much, and I have to to confess to you, this has been very cathartic for me, so I'm grateful. And
0: now the semi-sermonette I call "In My Homily Opinion." Recent Ye Gods guest Ken Burns quoted from Ecclesiastes: "What has been will be again." What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. I thought of those words when Tim mentioned how, when he became head of Parsons' design department, he had to mandate courses in design history because none had existed. Students had been graduating unaware of the origins of the industry and art in which they planned to devote their careers. Appalling? Yes. Surprising? No. Increasingly, history finds itself consigned to the dustbin of academic history, along with other humanities majors including ethics and philosophy and languages. A recent New Yorker article reports that majors at Arizona State's racially diverse English department, which boasts two Pulitzer Prize winners, dropped by roughly half in the last decade. Since 2012, U.S. humanities enrollment is down 17%. Why? Pressured to succeed, students seek high-paying jobs, and fast. Many see science, tech, engineering, and math as superhighways to wealth and early retirement, and the humanities as the two-lane backroad that led to the Bates Motel. But in Fareed Zakaria's book, In Defense of a Liberal Education, he cites a study claiming that 74% of employers consider liberal educations to best-ready students for our global economy. And STEM is no longer immune to layoffs. Indian émigré Zakaria praises American education, which is based on the ancient Greek idea that in a republic, self-ruling citizens should be broadly educated. A disciplined, liberal education, Zakaria contends, teaches you how to write and writing makes you think. Eternal truths, like thinking is good, are, in my homily opinion, eternally true, though they be ignored or forgotten. Seeing your place in history's parade makes you wise and humble. Others came before you, and others are going to follow. Only in an amnesiac world is everything under the sun new. As Ecclesiastes told us, a long time ago. Well, that's my homily opinion. Email me yours at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Review us at Apple Podcasts and follow us at yegodspodcast on all platforms. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.